Amen. We'll return now to the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. These are the words of God. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved." He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father, your word is open and openly read. Now open our hearts, every dark, unbelieving corner, and fill us with your glorious light through the preaching of your word. Do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, a few weeks go by, and then we dive right back into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. I apologize for that, but we, we end up in verse 9, where after Jesus has heard, I'm sorry, Nicodemus has heard that he must be born again. What does that mean? And that it's all up to the Spirit. It's all up to the sovereign work of the Spirit. You can't do anything about it. What does that mean? He finally turns to Jesus, Nicodemus turns to Jesus and says, how can these things be? How is this possible? And this response to Jesus' declaration reveals every self-righteous man's spiritual ignorance towards the gospel. And we are all self-righteous accusers, serpent-bitten, already condemned men and women, doomed to die. That's what this glorious passage about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is all about. It's about how lost we are. It's about how lost this world is. It's about how self-righteous we are, about how we are so quick to justify ourselves, how quick we are to point the fingers elsewhere to any of the problems that we might have in, in terms of our relationship with God, how quick we are to blame others and, and make excuses. Nicodemus thinks he can earn his way to heaven. He can earn, his fa earn favor before God. But we're all just like him. We're all self-righteous. We're all accusers. We're all bitten by serpents, as, as Jesus is going to point out. And we're doomed to die. But God so loved this snake-bit world that he determined to do something about it. He alone determined to do something about it. So I'm going to give an overview here of the passage again, just to get the flow, and then we'll see um, what the Lord has for us in these, in these words. We pick up where Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus replies with a question that acts as an admonition. Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. He's a doctor of theology. He should know better. 
He should understand the things that Jesus is saying. Jesus says that we speak and that we know, probably referring to he and the Father testifying together. We'll talk about that. And if he does so with earthly images, if he speaks with earth, earthly images and Nicodemus doesn't get that, left still in unbelief, Jesus fears there's no chance that Nicodemus or any self-righteous man is going to be able to receive the heavenly things. Only the Son of Man has descended from heaven, and so only the Son of Man knows these things firsthand, verse 13. Jesus now turns to another Old Testament image. Remember, when he, when he when we spoke about being born again, when he spoke about the, uh, the work of the wind, the work of the wind spirit, he was referring to all kinds of images that are found in the Old Testament that speak of him that Nicodemus should have understood. And now he turns to another one, an image of Moses lifting up the cursed serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man will be lifted up, he says, in a similar way to save those cursed in their sins and grant them eternal life, verse 14 and 15. God will do this because of his great love for the world, verse 16. And this is why God sent his Son. His purpose in save, sending the Son was to save the world. He who simply believes in Jesus is not condemned, and he who does not believe in Jesus is already, already stands in condemnation, verse 18. Because men love their darkness due to their evil deeds, verse 19. This is the nature of those practicing evil. The nature of those who practice evil, they hate the light and they love the darkness, verse 20. In contrast, the one who does the truth comes to the light. He loves the light, revealing that God has done something. That God has done those true and good, good deeds that are in him, including coming to faith in Jesus. So we're going to take a look here at Nicodemus the man. And consider him, and consider a man at his, at his finest, man trying his best to be right, good, upright. Man at his best and being able to give a, a good account of himself, he thinks. You and me, who on our own think that we can give a good account of ourselves before God. And then we'll take a look at Jesus, both as the Son of Man, because he refers to himself as the Son of Man, and then to the commentary on Jesus, where he is referred to as the Son of God, the person who has been sent by God himself. So first of all, Nicodemus the man. This is again verses 9 through 12 of your Bibles is before you. Remember that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he is a member of the Sanhedrin who came by night. Um, last time I spoke, I, I, I mentioned that, that he was a Pharisee and that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And then I made a mistake as I, was, I continue on. I called him a Sadducee. He was not a Sadducee. Pharisees and Sadducees were two different set, uh, uh, sets of, of the Jews. And they actually didn't get along quite well. But um, he was a member of the Sanhedrin most likely because he was called a ruler of the Sanhedrin. That, those would have been the group that would have been responsible for the oversight of the law being being followed within, within the Jewish community. He was, so he was both a great doctor and kind of the policeman of the world also to make sure that everybody was following neat and tidy all the rules, rules that were before them. And he's come to Jesus um, most likely as a representative of that Sanhedrin. He says, he, he says that we know that you are a great teacher. So, so Nicodemus comes and he says, we know that you're a great teacher. We're ready, to, we're ready to buy into the fact that you are coming with words to us from God. And Jesus, as I mentioned, blows it. He blows the opportunity. He, and instead of saying, well, thank you very much for acknowledging my, my wisdom and my knowledge, he slams Nicodemus. He slams Nicodemus by telling him that, um, this, this, this man, that you don't understand anything. You need to be born again. You need to start all over. You need to, you need to wait for the, for the Spirit to transform you like everyone else. 
So Jesus confounds this well-educated teacher with his explanation of the Old Testament prophecies that Nicodemus should have known, requiring a new birth in the sovereign work of the Spirit and not the works of man in order to see the kingdom of God. It's completely opposite of what Nicodemus is thinking, who's thinking that he can attain enough knowledge, answer all of his questions, and reach a status of being right before God. And, and Jesus is saying, you don't know, understand the book that you are reading. Uh, he, Jesus will say this later in, in another passage. He'll say, where he'll be speaking to the Pharisees and he'll say, you, you, you testify of the scriptures, but the scriptures testify of me. You say that you follow the scriptures, but the scriptures testify to me. You're missing the whole point. So this is, uh, this is how he begins with Nicodemus. Remember now, Nicodemus represents the best educated religious men, the class of scholars who should know better. And in another sense, Nicodemus represents all of us who believe that we can come to understand spiritual things. We think that on our own, we can come to understand spiritual things. And the fact of the matter, the scriptures proclaim we can't. Not only, do we, not only are we not able, we don't want to. First uh, Corinthians 2 says that the natural man, that is man at his greatest, at his finest, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. It, it, ref, it ref, requires of us to have the Spirit to understand spiritual things. But we can, we, and we don't do this because we are spiritually dead. We are by nature dead, Ephesians 2, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Jews and Gentiles alike, he's going to argue. All of us, all of us by nature are dead to the spiritual things. And then we operate, we live like zombies, the walking dead. We live according to the flesh, according to our fleshly desires. That's what we naturally do, including in these natural fleshly desires, trying to understand spiritual truths. And we get it wrong. We get it wrong all the time. The problem for all of us is our natural ignorance our natural ignorance of heavenly and spiritual things. Verses 10 through 12 indicate that we must first confess that on our own, we are unable to attain the true knowledge of God, that what we naturally conclude about spiritual things is normally wrong, and that apart from God's gracious intervention, that is like the blowing of the wind, him blowing the wind wherever he wants, the spirit blows wherever it wishes, it goes wherever it wishes, we will only persist in this, fo in this folly. That's what we have to come to understand. That's, we have to come to acknowledge our ignorance. <laughs> but there's a problem. There's a, there's, th that creates this circular problem. Do you see this? Think about this for a second. Uh, men who are dead cannot decide to, to come alive. Men who are dead cannot decide to come alive. All of you who are dead out there, raise your hands and, and, and if you'd like to, to become alive now. You see, it doesn't work that way. Secondly, men who are ignorant, I mean, really, if, if a man is truly ignorant, <coughs> men who are ignorant are ignorant that they are ignorant, right? Men who are ignorant are ignorant of the fact that they are ignorant until someone else enlightens them. 
In other words, they can't come to a, a realization on their own of their ignorance, and they can't bring themselves alive. This is the great problem that the world finds itself in. And Jesus is going to turn to an Old Testament uh, pattern, an Old Testament picture, in order to show how God all knew that and did something about it, was pointing towards something that he was going to do about it. So verse 11 again. <coughs> he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. The we in Jesus' language is most likely the Father. And the reason I, I, I think it's, it's the Father that he's referring to is because it's the, Jesus will speak of later in John's gospel in great detail of this interrelationship between the Father and the Son, of the testimony of the Son to the Father, the testimony of the Father to the Son. And so I, I think that most likely he's referring to the, to the Godhead, the triune Godhead, and that we, the Father and the Son, are both testifying um, to the fact that whatever they say, <laughs> whatever they testify to, people won't receive they refuse to receive it in this fallen state. So, the, the, um, the only way into this knowledge, then, is to be in communion with them. And God must stoop to us in order for this to happen. The only way we cannot, on our own, Nicodemus, you can't, on your own, come to a knowledge of who I am while you hold me at a distance, you cannot come into a relationship with the Father while you keep a, your distance from us because what we have, of what we have proclaimed. And what we have proclaimed is that you're dead in your sins. What we have proclaimed is you cannot, of your own, of your own goodness, somehow reach and attain God's, uh, God's, uh, God's acceptance. You keep that at distance, and instead you ask questions. You ask questions about spiritual things, and you try to figure out for yourself a spiritual way of reckoning why you've been created, where you are in relation to reality, and what eternity is going to bring. And all across the world, over all of mankind's history, we come up with religious systems to answer those questions. How are we created? How are we related to reality? How are we related if there is anything transcendent and what's going to happen to us in all of future? And we try, as dead men, keeping God at the distance, because we don't want to have anything to do with him, to try to figure out on our own what it is that is right and wrong. It is as though we, we, as though we bring God up on the witness stand and ask him to sit down and answer, answer some questions for us. Because we're going to judge whether or not he has good answers or bad answers. But God is not, the wit God is not being tested here. He is testing us. God is, not, God is not being judged. He is the judge. But we don't like that. We, we want to judge God. We want to judge God's ways. We want to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and then tell him what is right or wrong. And that is always the state of the unregenerate man. That is always the state of the dead, ignorant man ever since the fall. When, when, when Adam and Eve turned away from God and followed the ways of the serpent, at that moment, all of mankind falls into just that kind of ignorance and death. And what, what's, what's horrible about it is man can't see in and of himself where he is. And man doesn't want to see where he is. He wants to try to create a reality according to his own definitions, according to his own passions, according to his own desires, according to his own judgments. And he wants to tell God, this is the way reality should be. You see how, how that just completely inverts everything. 
And as it inverts everything, you, you can do this and you can look like Nicodemus. You can look like a pretty straight, up, upright individual. You, look, you can look like somebody who's you know, really trying to follow what's right and what's wrong. You can, you can really look like you're pretty, a, a good citizen. But in all of that, you are, you are condemned in your ignorance and your death because you do not, you, you cannot take care of your sins that way. And there's a righteous, holy God whose wrath is being poured out, whose condemnation upon us has already been declared. What are we going to do? So unless God receives and reaches down to us, we, like Nicodemus, never can attain or reach up to him. People love the verse John 3.16, but the context of John 3.16 is horrible news. Really, really bad news. We are lost in our condemnation. And now God, but, but Jesus says, you can't do anything. You can't get up there. You can't get to heaven. There's only one who has descended from heaven who can tell you exactly what heaven is like and how you can get there. There's only one, and it is the Son of Man. And he can declare these things to you. And so now he goes on in 13, verses 13 and 15. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So no one has access to this spiritual knowledge, except the one who has descended from there, even the Son of Man. That's what verse 13 is about. You can't get to the heavenly knowledge because you can't get you because you are you are kept from there by your sin but one has come down who can tell you about what is heaven what is the path to heaven and that one is the son of man the son of man must be looked to in faith in order to remove the condemnation that has afflicted us all but how does that work how do how do we look to him in faith well to explain jesus takes nicodemus to another old testament account that nicodemus must have known well he must have studied and memorized and taught from it. Okay, so he knows, he knows the story of Moses and the serpents biting the people in the wilderness better than you probably do. Nicodemus does. But remember the story. When the Israelites were in the wilderness and spoke rebellious complaints against the Lord, why have you done this to me? Why is my life like this? Why are things so hard? And accuses God of life is not fair. This is not fair. I deserve better, right? This is the kind of complaint that is being made God. I, uh, if I was God, <laughs> I'd make this world a whole lot better place than you. That's blasphemy. But that's what our heart does regularly. That's, that's what we do in our hearts regularly. If I was God, I wouldn't. Do... You're going through your day and one thing after another, after another goes wrong. And you go, you know, if I was a sovereign God, I don't know how to do it this way. That's not what I do. That's the complaining that's going on in the wilderness, the, the demand to be set to be above God and be able to de declare for yourself the way the world should actually be. Well, so when that happens, God sends fiery seraphim. It, it says serpents in our Bibles, um, but the, the Hebrew word is seraphim. It's, they're, they're like angels, fallen angels. They're little devils. They're little red fiery devils. And these little devils, these snakes, would bite the people and cause them to die. They would bite the people, and the poison in them would cause them to die. 100%. Everybody who gets bit dies. Okay? So realizing that this was happening because of their sin, the people asked Moses to intercede for them. And God told Moses to do something which seemed strange. He says, I want you to go and make a bronze, out of bronze, I want you to make one of those seraphim, one of those serpents. And I want you to impale it upon a pole, and I want you to hold the pole up. 
So the cursed animal who curses and kills, who destroys, the, the one who is the poisonous one, is, is the one that you look to. And when people look to that one, when they look to the cursed one, then they'll be saved. When they look to the cursed one, then their curse will be taken away and they'll be saved. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you should understand what that's talking about. Now, so when, when someone was bitten, there was only one cure. It was the only way to be cured from this 100% poisonous bite. Jesus said that that was his mission. Jesus says, even as, the, even as Moses raised up the serpent, even as Moses raised up the serpent, this is verse uh, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up. For we too, what he's, what's his point? We too have been bitten by the serpent and received the deadly poison. We're dead. We're on our way to death. We're, we're dead and we're on our way to utter condemnation. We must be born again. And the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 14. The two musts go together. We must be born again, and the Son of Man must be lifted up. We must be born again, and the Son of Man is going to be the means of us being born again. The Son of Man being lifted up. How does this work? And why the title, the Son of Man, here? Because Nicodemus must also see that this lifting up would not only point to a sign of great cursing, Jesus is, is cursed, um, as he hangs on a tree, Paul says in Galatians chapter 13, um, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's actually, um, he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Actually, Paul says this. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that's why a cursed, that's why a cursed poisonous serpent is placed on a pole and then lifted up. Because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus becomes that curse. He's the cursed one instead of you, instead of me. He's the cursed one. <coughs> well, why the Son of Man, though? Well, the title Son of Man also refers to a, a one who is going to be lifted up. So Jesus is lifted up, and, and later on he'll, he'll say this lifting up does refer to his crucifixion. But it also refers to his ascension. Jesus is lifted up in his ascension as well. And that's foretold about the Son of Man. This is why Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 3, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7, there's this vision that Daniel receives of the Son of Man. And he says, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days. So he didn't come to earth, he comes to heaven, to the Ancient of Days. This is, this is a picture of Jesus' ascension. He comes, to, he comes to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, having been lifted up, <coughs> was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So here's, here's what's happening. Jesus would be lifted up as the great curse absorber. Okay, he's going to be lifted up just like that, just like that uh, serpent, and somehow... He's going to absorb the curse that should be upon you because he's lifted up and God's wrath is poured out upon him instead upon the snake-bitten ones, instead upon the woes, those who've been bitten by the serpents and have the poison of death in them. 
But also, he's not just that one who's, who's ascended in that way, but he's also lifted up as the great victor over sin and death, to be seated at the throne of God over all creation. And this is the way life always goes. Death and then resurrection. There is always a descent. There is always a giving over. There is always a great full submission to your death. To, to your, to, you, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to all of that. And then, just as Jesus rose from the dead, so we have the same pattern. We are lifted up as well in the new life in Christ. But Jesus did it first. He's both the great curse absorber and then the great victor. And being found in, a G, in, in appearance as a man, Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as, as Paul writes that in Philippians, notice he's not just speaking about you or this small little remnant of, of some. He's talking about the, the work that Jesus does on the cross has an effect on all of the world. It has an effect over all. Something is going to happen historically over all of the world. This great curse absorber is going to become the great victor. And so, verse 16, for God so loved the world, that world, that poisoned world, that death, rebellious world. God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this is just a side note for you to consider. Um, I, I think that beginning in verse 16, if you have a red-letter Bible, it shouldn't be red letters anymore. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, there is a grammatical structure that tells you when a quotation begins, but there is not a, they didn't have quotation marks. There's gr not a grammatical indication where a quote ends. And sometimes, really, especially in John, it's very difficult to tell when Jesus stops talking, when, when John is quoting Jesus, or when John is now referring and making comments on that about Jesus. And I think that verses 16 through 21 are actually John's meditation on what, what, what this discourse, the whole discourse, 1 through um, 15, has taken place between Nicodemus and Jesus. Now John is speaking. It, it, he's, he's told us this, he's referred to us, all that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus. And now he says, for God so loved the world. Here's why this happened. Here's what was going on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And part of the reason is you see Jesus refer himself as the son of man regularly. He, he will be the one who refers himself, happens in Mark quite a bit and throughout John, that Jesus refers himself as the son of man, that title that comes from Daniel. But he doesn't so much refer to himself as the son of God personally. The son of God, um, and also the, the word only begotten, which is the Greek word is monogenes, um, and, and it, it, it's translated either only begotten or the unique one. Um, it's only used um, in, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 18, and in 1 John 4, 9, all clearly times where John is using it to refer to Jesus, to speak to us about Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to use that word, um, that, that, uh, this declaration, son of, uh, son of God. He'll call himself the Son, but not necessarily the Son of God. He'll refer to himself as the Son and, the, and, and then God as Father, and he'll talk about his Father-Son relation. 
And so for that and some other reasons, I think that really what we're having now is John preaching to us. He's told us the story, and now we begin, he begins preaching to us. God, he says, so loved the world. Love, then, is ultimately defined for us here in verse 16. If you want to know what is love, love is defined for us in verse 16. When God so loved the world, we understand here what love actually is. The Father gives his only son for you. It is that sacrificial, that unique, that, um, uh, that, that non... There's, there's not a, a, a necessary response or a necessary um, first action that has to take place before this action of love takes place, this sacrificial giving. That's what love looks like. So he placed him, God placed Jesus on that gibbet for you instead of you. He hung Jesus on the cross instead of you. He did that on, be, on behalf of you. Someone had to die because sin requires the shedding of blood. Someone had to die. And Jesus, because he was the God-man, because he was perfectly man and perfectly divine without sin, is able to be the one who is able to covenantally be now the new Adam, just as the first Adam represented all of us. So the new Adam represents all that are going to be in him. And that one dies on the cross and is able to absorb the curse He's able to take that poison out of you. He's able to, to, to take care of that which would kill you, condemn you, eternally damn you. He's the one who's able to take that. And he, he, he does that. God knows that he can. And so God gives him. God the Father gives his son in this act of love. And our response is only one. There's only one thing left for us to do. And that is to believe. That whoever believes on him should not perish but receive everlasting life. We believe in order to receive. We don't do anything else. There's nothing else for us to do when it comes to the gift of salvation except believe. Believe that God the Father took his son, nailed him to the cross so that he might bleed and die suffering, that he would be buried in a tomb and truly, completely die, separated by his spirit, his spirit and body, and his spirit go down into Hades. And, and then on the third day, rise again as the great victor. But God's love, God's love means Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice for us. We receive coming out of believing, and what we receive is from infinite eternal love, and it's eternal life. Eternal life. Not just a do-over. I think way too often the gospel is proclaimed in such a way that you can raise your hand, sign a card, and get a do-over. That is not what's happening. When you believe, when the gospel is preached, and your eyes are opened and you believe, what you receive is not a great do-over. What you receive is infinite love. What you receive is eternal life. You will live forever in that love. And you will live in that love, and it will grow deeper and wider and longer and higher forever and ever and ever. Ask any man and woman who's been married years and years and years in a faithful, good marriage, and they will tell you, I love my spouse like I never loved before. 
And I'm loved by my spouse more than I ever have before. And it's just a little taste, a little touch of what it means to be eternally connected to God your Father through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and to enjoy that love with him forever and ever and ever. Too often, I watch Christians walk away from that love because life is just too hard and the love doesn't feel all that great yet. And you think that's it. You think, well, it's just a great do-over and it wasn't so great. I'll go try something else. And you think, you think about tossing away or walking away from that which is going to grow in infinite proportions for the rest of your eternal life. Why, in heaven's name, would anyone walk away from such a thing? Because they've been bitten. Because you've been bitten. There's poison. It's death. It's condemnation. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life because that's what God intended to do. He sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, as he'll say later on, because the world's already condemned. Didn't need to send his son to condemn the world. He sent his son to save the world, to save all those snake-bitten ones. God so loved the world. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus didn't need to come and condemn the world, for the world was already condemned. Verse 18, there will be a final judgment. There will be a final separation of the sheep and the goats at his second coming. But in this first advent, he came to save, and he came to save a world. We're not to, it's interesting, God so loved the world, but we're told not to love the world. So God loves the world, but we're told not to love the world. We have to understand always the context of how that's being talked about. We are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation, of participation. In other words, we are, and, and, and John writes this to Christians in 1 John, we, we are not to love the world. God loves the world. We are not to love the world. How are we not to love the world? Well, he says in 1 John, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And that world is passing away. That world is snake bit. That, that, that world is poisoned. That world is condemned. You don't want to go there. You don't want to give yourself to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Why? Because it's a snake-bit world, and it's condemned. Instead, you want to join with God the Father loving the world in the proclamation of the, of the one who came to, to save the snake-bit ones, turning them to Christ. That, that's what God did. So, we are not to love the world with a selfish love of participation, but God loves the world with a selfless, costly love of redemption. He does not come into the world to enjoy the pleasures of the world. He comes into the world to, to save out of the world those who are dead in it. And Jesus, now reigning at God's right hand, having ascended, having ascended, Jesus in that love, now reigns there until all his enemies are put under his feet. Remember, remember the end of that section of, of, of Philippians chapter 2 again. He's been humbled even with death at the cross, and then God's highly exalted him. And he's highly exalted him until what? 
that every name, that, that the name of Jesus, I'm sorry, every knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Psalm 110, we are told that Jesus now reigns, he now reigns at the Father's right hand until all his enemies are, are placed under his feet, until he, they're made a footstool. Jesus reigns victoriously. Jesus does not reign in, in, in like, you win some, you lose some, you know? I tried my best. That's not how Jesus is reigning. He is reigning progressively, saving the world more and more and more, making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is reigning in that love until all of his enemies are made his friends, till the world saved. Listen to several verses from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, have you been justified by faith? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You who were his enemy are now his friend. But you didn't, you didn't come to God and say, you know, I'm really sorry about all the things I've done, and I'd like to be friends with you now. Well, based on what? Well, I'm going to be really, really good now. Yeah, but what are we going to do about the sin? Because the wages of sin is death. Well, I can't do anything about that, but I'm going to be really, really good now. Which never works out anyway. Yeah, but what are we going to do about the wages, about the death part? God cannot be just if he just waves his hand and says, okay, be a lot better now. No, we have to take care of the death part. But the way that he is just and the one who justifies, the, one that he, the only way that you can be his friend is for Jesus to die for you. That's the only way. You can't do anything but to believe that Jesus has done it for you. But he has. Therefore, having been justified by faith, not by works, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled. Verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to come and make a deal because he knew what? You wouldn't make a deal. <laughs> you couldn't and you wouldn't. Verses 10 and 11 of Romans 5. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. Those, that is, those who have the faith of Abraham are going to outnumber the stars or the sand of the seashore. John, the same John, will record in his vision of Revelation, turning and seeing a number of the elect, a number that, that cannot be counted. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world and save a few remnant. Jesus Christ came into the world. Now, there will, will be sheep and goats. There will be those who are turned away. There will, there will be those who are lost in their defiance. But the work of God's Spirit through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the church in this world over time is going to bring forth what God wanted because God so loved the world that he did something about it. That's what's going on, and that is what's being declared there for us. So you have this terrible news. You have this terrible news that we are all lost in our condemnation and this glorious news that the only one who could do something about it did. And that's why we come and worship him and renew covenant with him, and grow stronger in our lives with him. In these final verses, 19 through 21, we see again our lost estate unless God moves. 
We love our sin, we love our darkness, and when the light comes, we hate it, and we hate him. And this is why we stand already condemned. Therefore, when someone comes into the light, it is only because God has done the work. There's nothing for us ever to boast in except the cross of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.9 says, none of it's works lest you could boast, and you can't. Galatians 6, Paul would say, let no one boast. There's nothing for me to boast in except one thing. I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so let's, I want to I leave you with something for you, something for the world. Something for you and something for the world. For you. The only way that you can look to the cross and see your salvation, the only way that you can look at the cross and see your salvation there is if you look to the cross and see your damnation there. That's why the serpent is there. That's why the cursed Savior is on the cross. Jesus, the cursed one, is hanging on a cross. Unless you see Jesus, the cursed one, hanging on the cross, there's no salvation. Because the message is you must repent and believe. That, must, that means that you see the racked serpent there. You see the racked serpent there and you see that's your sin. And that's what God has done with your sin. And you're repenting of it. You're walking away from it. You hate it now. You agree with God. Kill it. And you see Jesus there as well in faith dying for you. So... The message is to repent and believe. And another way to look at this is that your sin, your serpent, your dragon must die, impaled on that cross with Christ. Another way to look at it is when they're in the desert and they're bitten by that serpent, either they're going to die or the serpent's going to die. And what, and what God says is, look away to the serpent that I have put up there, and that serpent's going to die instead of you. Serpents bit you, you're going to die or the serpent's dying. You look away and you see that I've already impaled that serpent and you will live and the serpent will die. But you'll see that God has done it and only God has done it. And so you must die because the poison is in you, because it is who you are. Thomas Brooks says, sin in a wicked man is like poison in a serpent. It is in its natural place. And so you will find not only that the serpent must die, but the serpent and his poison is you, in you. You must die. And so Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, in that resurrection life. So you must die in Christ that you might live anew in the resurrection of the love of Jesus Christ. And, and, and for those who have ears to hear, that means God opens your eyes from your ignorance, and you realize there is absolutely nothing I can do to be saved, but believe and fall upon the one who is the Lord Jesus himself. And for the sake of the world, all of our societal problems stem from our sin, from the snake bite. Every problem that exists in the relationship of men and nations is a result of the snake bite. You cannot gather then a bunch of snake bit people to form a club or a group of experts on snake bite consequences and expect them to come up with a solution. You will notice over the history of man, it doesn't work very well. It only creates more problems. All we can do, all this sorry group of people living on this earth can do with this world and all its problems is make it worse. That's all we can do. Because we're all snake bit. And the world's a hard place. The world's a hard place. And we murmur against God or our gods. 
And all that brings is more fiery serpents with all their poisonous accusations, pointing the fingers here or there, but never upon ourselves. And this is why we pray for Reformation Revival. For the preaching of the gospel to go forth to open up eyes, to raise up the dead, to bring forth light in the midst of darkness. For our people to be able to look away from themselves and all their useless expertise and instead look to the serpent on the pole. The Lord Jesus Christ, our curse, our Savior, our Lord. That is the way out. It is the only way out. And what you see in our world, in our nation, in our generation is a walking, a straight line walking away from that. And instead, gathering together all the serpent bitten, all the snake bit um, experts, to, to, whether it's political, it doesn't matter, in all throughout society, and they're going to decide what's best for us. And all they can do is make it worse. Because we, as a people, love the darkness. And finally, finally, I want you to walk away here, and I want you to see that while we are guilty of only this, actually, we are guilty of, of seeing the world in materialistic ways, which is why we are a people of so afraid of death, so afraid of death. We want to hide death in our society so much. And, and it's amazing how much Christians are afraid of death. Are afraid of, afraid of uh, and, and the reason that we are is because we are we grown up in such a materialistic world. Now, mater, I don't mean materialistic like we're really really wealthy, although we are. I mean a, a Darwinistic evolutionary non God. Everything that's real is what we can see and touch and taste, and that's all that's real. And if that's all that's real, death is really scary. Death is really scary. But God tells you that that what you what you are going to have for an eternity, what you are going to walk into is far more, far vastly more than anything you can see or touch right now. It is, it, you're, you're going to be taken into and whipped up into a reality, a reality which exists, a reality which you get tastes of right now, and that taste comes in the infinite love of Jesus Christ over you. So Paul will pray in Ephesians 3, and I want to pray just this part of his prayer with you now. That, that you, that each one of us, that you may be able to comprehend, to understand, with all the saints together, what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul did not pray that prayer because God wouldn't answer it. Paul prayed that prayer because God answers it. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. That we would comprehend with all the saints the infinite love of Jesus Christ for you, in you, for you, for an eternity. It's all for you. Even Christians in this generation tend to think only of being a better person or a better spouse or a better parent or a better neighbor or a better, or better citizen. We, we keep thinking we're getting the second chance and so now we're going to be better. It's all about being better. And then, and then, then that's it. And it's work, 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 work now as a Christian. Rather than understanding the overwhelming grace and love of Jesus Christ over you and for you. His delight over you. His excitement to have you with him and all of the saints 
forever in glory. To be remade new and then to be renewed and renewed and renewed to walk and live and sing and enjoy him forever and ever. That's God's purpose. That's why the son was sent. That's why the cursed serpent, Jesus, is hung on the pole. Poison and all, yours. And you die in him to have new life in him. Why in heaven's name would you walk away from that? Grow in it. Grow in it deeper and deeper. Ask God to fill you with the fullness of his love. Ask God to reveal to you, to make known to you the deepness of his love. John 3.16 is important. So is John 3.18. So, so is John 3.18, which says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And Ephesians 3.14 and following is the great eye-opening prayer of the love of God for his people. The immeasurable love of God that has eternally changed everything for you. Everything God loves. Everything love God loves. If you have ears to hear, you need to see and hear. God loves you. What are you going to do with that? Maybe more important question is what will that do with you? Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, reveal your immeasurable love. You're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think because you are God, creator and redeemer, and you alone can save us. Then save us. Open eyes here and over this snake-bit world. Let your wind blow. The Spirit have his way with us. Save us, save this world, and praise your name for sending Christ your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's respond.